and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Well, The Guardian is reporting that Japan's Killing Stone has split into two, releasing superstitions amid the Sulphur Springs. It's not good to have something called a Killing Stone, is it? That's never a positive thing. (laughs) (laughs) So the mythology here is that this Seshoseki, or Killing Stone, is the object containing the transformed corpse of Tamamo no Mae, a beautiful woman who had been part of a secret plot hatched by a feudal warlord to kill Emperor Toba, who reigned from 1107 to 1123. And the legend has it that her true identity, take note, Naruto fans, was an (laughs) evil nine-tailed fox whose spirit is embedded in the hunk of lava located in an area of Tochigi Prefecture near Tokyo, which is famous for its sulfur hot springs. Hmm. And while the stone was said to have been destroyed and its spirit exercised by a Buddhist monk who scattered its pieces across Japan, most Japanese prefer to believe that its home is on the slopes of Mount Nasu. So wait, a Buddhist monk basically was like, oh, we have this super awful stone. I'm going to bless it and smash it and get rid of it. And then when he did that, everyone was like, no, actually, it was this other stone. <laughs> it sounds more like the stone was said to have been destroyed and the pieces were across Japan. And I'm, I'm guessing this was a piece of it. Oh, but OK. Visitors to the area note it as a popular sightseeing spot. So it's <laughs> definitely a tourist pull. They had recent visitors after witnesses posted photos of the fractured stone. One Twitter user said in a post that got nearly 170,000 likes translates roughly into I feel like I've seen something that shouldn't be seen. <laughs> so, you know, some people are thinking the demon spirit of Tamama no Mai has been resurrected after almost a thousand years, but local media said cracks had appeared in the rock several years ago, which might have allowed rainwater to seep inside and weaken the structure. So, you know, science also. Sure, sure. But interestingly, local and national government officials are meeting to discuss the stone's fate. The newspaper quoted a Nasu tourism official as saying he would like to see the Sesho Seki restored, presumably with its demonic inhabitant. Yeah. How do you, I mean, you don't want to close the barn door after the horses are out. At the no. very least, you have to catch the spirit before you're going to close the rock back up. Listen, we've seen Ghostbusters. We've seen Supernatural. <laughs> we, yeah, we, we know are... how this works. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from ZocaloPublicSquare.org, and it's titled How Economic Warfare Backfired in Rome. And it kind of gives a wink and a nudge at the current situation Uh, with economic sanctions in Russia. But, you know, very, very different times and very different circumstances, despite the parallels (laughs) it tries to draw. So this ancient case study begins in the late summer of 89 B.C., when Mithridates VI of Pontus, the ruler of a medium-sized kingdom along the southern Black Sea coast, which is present-day northeastern Turkey, declared war on Rome. The trigger had been a Roman ally's recent raid on Pontus. 
Mithridates lacked the military capacity to invade Italy or directly attack the city of Rome. Instead, the king decided to damage the Roman heartland indirectly by attacking buffer states that separated his realm from the Roman provinces along the Aegean coast. As his armies swept through Roman Asia Minor, they captured Roman officials, seized cities, and confiscated the local treasuries that supported the Roman regime. Then, once he had secured these lands, Mithridates sent out a letter that was received as an order to kill Roman businessmen, tax collectors, and government contractors whose fortunes depended on the Roman government's activities in the region. The rhetorian Valerius Maximus would later write, With that one letter, he killed 80,000 Roman citizens who were spread throughout the cities in Asia. Wow. Yeah. Other sources count as many as 150,000 Roman men, women, and children living in the cities and towns of Asia Minor who were rounded up and killed by people acting on Mithridates' orders. First century Rome actually possessed an extremely sophisticated financial sector in which credit flowed easily and wealthy people based much of their fortunes on their holdings of nomina, creditor notes that functioned like modern bonds. Huh. Romans could hold, sell, or exchange nomina facilitated by bankers working in the Roman Forum. But Mithridates murdered so many tax collectors, contractors, and traders based in Asia Minor and Delos that the nomina tied to business activities there lost all of their value at once. Wow. I mean, there is kind of a big difference between modern day sanctions of like, we're not going to do business with you, we're going to freeze your accounts, versus we're going to murder all the people who do business with you. (laughs) That's different. It's not the same. So, the sophistication of the Roman financial sector compounded the damage because these suddenly worthless nomina had been sold to investors used as collateral to buy houses and served to capitalize Roman banks. Massive amounts of wealth disappeared from Roman banks, investors, and property owners overnight. The historian Philip Kay has compared the financial crisis Mithridates caused to the subprime mortgage crisis in the U.S. Hmm. But... Unlike the 2008 U.S. financial crisis, Rome's public finances collapsed alongside its private wealth thanks to Mithridates' economic warfare. With Asia occupied by Mithridates and Rome's tax collectors murdered, the Roman poor faced a sudden disruption to the funds that ensured their food supply. Mm. Such a desperate sense of panic fell upon the city that a mob murdered one of Rome's chief judicial magistrates when he tried to mediate a dispute between lenders and debtors. Yikes! Its leaders introduced emergency measures to restrict the amount of debt lenders could take on and to compel lenders to renegotiate loans that could not be repaid. Rome also injected capital into the economy by minting large numbers of silver coins, some of which were made from bullion borrowed by the state from the treasuries of Roman temples as an emergency measure. Then, as Roman anxiety and anger rose, the great commanders Marius and Sulla pushed Rome into a civil war, sparked by an argument over who would lead the army against Mithridates. Which is very funny to me, because it's like, they literally just started fighting in their own country because they both really, really wanted to fight the other guy. Right. (laughs) Well, you know, it's part of that, like, mob mentality. It's it's kind of what happens when that rage is not channeled, but channeling the rage also comes with its own, you know, ethical issues. Right, that just means you're murdering somebody different, not necessarily (laughs) unraging yourself. But I mean, that element has always been a critical component of warfare since humankind, you know, just (laughs) we recruit young men for a reason. (laughs) Ultimately, this economic war failed to defeat Rome, and it would end up in disaster for Mithridates. Few Romans would have known the name Mithridates before 88 BC, but once he directly affected the life of every Roman citizen, the Republic had no choice but to pour their resources into his defeat. 
The Republic fought on, pushing back Mithridates from Roman territory and forcing him to sign a peace treaty in 84 BC. Rome fought two more wars with Mithridates until 63 BC when his own son betrayed him, and the old king killed himself so he could avoid being paraded through the city of Rome in a triumphal procession. Hmm. Well, I mean, if you're the kind of guy whose son is going to betray you, maybe you haven't made all the best choices in life anyway. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You know, like... (laughs) But the son betraying thing, that was kind of the thing back then, wasn't it? That's right. That's what good sons do. Yeah. You know, it was just like Sith lords. That's how they function. That's just Greek (laughs) society. Or Roman. (laughs) Next link. Next link. All right. This next article from Discover Magazine is safe for work, but it is sort of risque adjacent. It's a scientific look into the question What's the appeal of deep voices in men? Mm. Now, you may know that the question is not, are deep voices sexy? Because as it turns out, science has already answered that question definitively again and again. Yes. Men, yes. Absolutely, yes. (laughs) Men with deep voices are more likely to be perceived as attractive, respectable, dominant. And according to Carolyn Hodges Simeon, an anthropologist at Boston University, Judgments of literally anything that contributes to success and competition are all strongly affected by voice pitch. Hmm. What's more, this bias extends beyond cisgender and hetero relationships. Studies have found that homosexual men also find deep voices more attractive. And another study found that among trans men undergoing hormonal therapy, the number one most important trait that participants wished to change for themselves was to gain a deeper voice. Mm. It also extends beyond Western industrialized cultures. Women of the Hazda hunter-gatherers in northern Tanzania perceive men with lower voices to be better hunters, and genetic testing showed that those men also have fathered more children in their society. So this is pretty conclusively a deeply embedded evolutionary preference. The question is, why? Yeah. Because, for one thing, it's not true of all animals. Many species show no vocal difference between males and females, and even for the ones that do, the discrepancy between them is generally much less than it is in humans. Hmm. Consider, for example, the generally understood rule that, on average, human men are taller than human women, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the overall difference between us and height is actually only about 8%. When it comes to vocal pitch, human men are around 60% lower than human women. Wow. So if we've got this hard evolutionary pressure to select for lower voices and the voices keep getting lower over time and humans keep surviving, that must mean that we're correct, right? It's not just that we perceive men with lower voices to be bigger and stronger. They must actually be. And by some measures, at least, they are. David Putz, an anthropologist at Pennsylvania State University, found that deeper voices did genuinely correlate to men who were taller, larger, and stronger. This is partly due to the fact that their vocal cords are physically larger, which does make your voice deeper, but a low voice is also at least partly connected with higher levels of testosterone, which, as we all know, tends to make you bigger and stronger. Mm-hmm. But he also found that while men's normal speaking voice was somewhat correlated to grip strength, the effect was much more pronounced when the men roared. Oh, so huh. if a man, yeah, he basically asked all these test participants to just roar at him and recorded it. <laughs> and if a man in the study had a deep voice but a weak roar, he turned out to be not as strong as the guy with a tenor range voice but a super intimidating roar. Hmm. And that takes us much further back along the evolutionary tree where we see things like roaring behavior in chimpanzees to defend their turf. Because at that point, we're not talking about sexual selection anymore so much as group battle tactics to survive conflict. Mm -hmm. And as David Putz found, 
the attractiveness of deep voices only goes to a certain point. When a voice gets too deep, potential partners start to rate them as less attractive, presumably because they're kind of scary, right? (laughs) And it's a sign that maybe they're prone to aggression. Mm -hmm. What's more, lower male voices have been scientifically correlated with a tendency toward infidelity. And breaking down the data further shows that partners actually prefer lower voices only in the context of short-term relationships, not long-term. Huh. And fully aside from the question of masculinity and sexuality, it turns out that there is another evolutionary reason why we might show a preference for lower voices. There is something called the immunocompetence handicap hypothesis, which notes that producing testosterone takes away energy from the immune system. So someone who is chronically ill or suffering from inflammatory stress is going to be devoting more of their resources to their immune system and thus end up with less testosterone over the course of their lives. So in that case, a lower voice truly would be an indicator of better health and therefore better suitability as a mate. Mm Mm-hmm. On the other hand, like a lot of scientific pursuits, this one's a mixed bag. There are a handful of studies that show no correlation between vocal pitch and strength after all. And the author of the article notes two prominent counterexamples, which are both depressing in their own way. First, there's Mike Tyson, who has a famously high-pitched voice, but Mm -hmm. plenty of muscles and testosterone to go around. And second, there's Barry White, whose, quote, velvety baritone did match up to his six foot four frame, but apparently did not equate to a healthier body because he died at the age of 58. Hmm. Which is unfortunate because the world could probably use more Barry White, I think. Yeah, I'll tell you what. The only thing that is certain is that people definitely perceive lower voices in both men and women as being better across pretty much every variable. Huh. So if you want to, you know, nail that job interview, you should actively try to speak with a lower voice. It will make a difference. Yeah, but even after the Elizabeth Holmes thing has highlighted the artificiality of a lower-pitched female voice being mm-hmm. transparently deceitful. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she overdid it. Like, there was something very weird about that entire presentation in my opinion. Right, it was too <laughs> but, much. Yeah, yeah. I have a fairly low voice for a woman and I I once had a boyfriend tell me like right as we started dating, he thought I had a smoker's voice. Oh, <laughs> which at the time I sort of took as an insult. I was like, are you saying my esophagus sounds damaged? Is that what I'm <laughs> <laughs> But then later I found out that he was a smoker and really he was just testing the waters to find out if I was. So I was like, ah, I'm not really taking that at face value then. I'm not Kathleen Turner levels. I'm still in like, you know, yeah. Tenor rage. But I can't, I'll tell you what, I can't sing female songs. Like if I'm singing along on the radio, I have Mm. to sing to male songs. I'm too, I I have no range. Basically, I can't sing is what it boils down to. But (laughs) (laughs) next link. Next Next link. link. Well, along the same lines or same ish, Discover's got a cute little ditty called Humans Aren't the Only Animals That Kiss. Aww. Aww. <laughs> we do know that smooching occurs across species. <laughs> and, you know, when we go back to a very famous Charles Dickens quote, man is the only animal that knows how to kiss. But not so fast there, Dickens. Um, if you do just even a quick Google image search for animals kissing, you will see a lot of animals kissing. <laughs> and Yeah. Why didn't Charles Dickens do a Google image search? That's what I'm asking. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but even if you can't see the internets, there are examples in nature that you might be able to witness. Moose and ground squirrels will brush noses. 
Turtles will tap heads. Many species of bats will even use their tongues during courtship. Oh! And as it turns out, bonobos—if you're not familiar with them—they're they're big kissers. Okay, bonobos are known Ooh. as the most amorous of the great apes. Instead of resolving conflicts with aggression, they often use sex. They're known for having a female-governed society. They tend to use kissing for reassurance and to firm up their relationship with other members of the community. They have been reported <laughs> kissing and nibbling for up to twelve minutes straight. Oh, buddies. wow! Bunch of harlots is what they are. <laughs> <laughs> so, why do we kiss? From an evolutionary standpoint, scientists think that we kiss to help us smell and assess potential mates, but. The spit itself is super important, and this is especially true for females. Saliva is full of hormones and other compounds that may provide a way of chemically assessing mate suitability, and that's just hundred percent the biological brain stepping in. Like, all right, let's get a little bit of saliva testing here, right?、Mm -hmm. According to earlier research in a 2007 study, men were more likely than women to initiate open mouth and tongue kissing. A possible explanation. <laughs> Male saliva has testosterone, the sex hormone that can affect their partner's libido. So you're kind of being roofied when you kiss somebody. You know, it's like, <laughs>、uh, yeah. The French kiss is nature's roofie. You heard it here. Wow. <laughs> We're also thinking that romantic kissing may have evolved into a courtship behavior with a number of functions, including sizing up mates, initiating sexual arousal, and maintaining bonds with a partner. But as we kind of hinted at, romantic kissing is not the norm even across humans. Earlier work suggested erotic kissing was nearly universal and found in ninety percent of the world. Turns out, less than half, y'all. Wow. What are they doing? Like shaking hands romantically? <laughs> like <laughs> this is a little bit of a shot in the dark. But have you guys seen Future Man on Hulu? It's an original series. Yes. <laughs> they、mm -mm. they have this whole like you know post apocalyptic human society where they abhor kissing because they call it the rat holes because that's where you put your you know they eat rats in the future so it's like. Why、right. would you want to touch someone where you're eating your food like this? Yeah, it's right up there with Demolition Man as well. It's the whole like, <laughs> oh, you're exchanging fluids. I mean, There's something gross about it. I'll yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from DiscoverMagazine.com, and it's titled "The Tylenol Murders Changed the Way We Take Medicine."、Mm. Little content <laughs> warning. Little bit dark、uh, in the beginning here. So. On a Thursday morning in 1982, a 12-year-old girl in suburban Chicago woke up feeling sick. Her parents decided to keep her home from school, and she took a dose of extra-strength Tylenol. Soon after she swallowed the familiar red and blue pills, her parents found her dead on the bathroom floor.、Nice. Later that、yeah. afternoon, in a nearby suburb, a 27-year-old man felt a muscle ache. He took several extra-strength Tylenols and collapsed. His younger brother took several Tylenols and then passed the bottle to his wife. Both soon、wow. died. Oh my gosh! In the coming days, three more women in the Chicago area died after taking extra strength Tylenol. The last victim was a flight attendant who had just returned to Chicago and stopped at a drugstore on her way home to buy the bottle. First responders immediately sensed that the Tylenol was the sinister link between the fatalities. Lab results revealed that many of the pills had been swapped out with potassium cyanide tablets. Five to seven milligrams of potassium cyanide can kill a person, and the pills were a far more potent forty-five milligrams.、Mm. So, cyanide is a naturally occurring chemical compound with a molecular makeup of a carbon atom triple bonded to a nitrogen atom. 
Cyanogenic compounds are produced by various fungi, algae, and plants. Potassium cyanide was famously added to a flavored punch and then drank by more than 900 members of the Jonestown cult in a mass murder-suicide in 1978. Oh, I didn't know that's what they died from. Yeah. I knew it was the Kool-Aid, but I didn't know potassium cyanide was what they put in there. Yeah. Not all uses of cyanide are quite so nefarious. Cyanides are used industriously for mining gold, pest control, and electroplating, the process of coating a metal with a thin layer of another metal. When swallowed, potassium cyanide interacts with stomach acids and converts to hydrogen cyanide, which allows it to cross the cell membrane. After lab results confirmed the pills were poisoned, authorities acted quickly to warn the public. The maker of Tylenol willingly recalled all products across the nation and offered a reward for information leading to the capture of the unknown assailant. Authorities, however, never learned who did the poisoning or how they went about doing it. They suspected the poisoner didn't work at a manufacturing plant and instead took advantage of the fact that retail products at the time didn't have security seals or tamper-proof packaging. It didn't take long for the Food and Drug Administration to respond, quickly mobilizing efforts to stop lethal tampering in the future. Tamper-proof packaging became mandatory, and the following year, the U.S. Congress passed an act making it a federal crime to tamper with consumer products. The pharmaceutical industry also shifted away from capsules as they were easier to contaminate than tablets. Such safety measures remain important, but the concern over cyanide has shifted to something else in the last few decades. In 2019, an article in the journal Medical Toxicology warned that cyanide is the ideal chemical weapon because it is readily available and easy to use. Most concerningly, it's also highly lethal. Yes, yeah. <laughs> that, is, that is the thing that makes it dangerous. Yeah. There's exactly. lots of things that are widely available, but don't kill you. Yeah. 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 That's, the, that's the note we need to end on. By the way, still poison. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> next link. Next, next link. link. This next article is from The Guardian, and it's called Hopes Raised for Once-A-Week Pills for Range of Conditions. Yes, please. Yeah, and the title says it all, really. Scientists are working on not just a specific pill, but a general pill technology that only has to be taken once a week. And this is a concept that, if successful, would revolutionize a lot of people's lives, right? Mm -hmm. Especially for medications like contraception, where if you miss one day, you're not just messed up for the day, you're messed up for the entire rest of the month. Mm Mm-hmm. So the company that is developing the technology is called Lindra, and it's backed by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which not surprisingly means they're also working on a once a week pill to treat malaria. And that's a case where it's not so much about patients forgetting to take a daily pill as it is the logistical difficulties of getting to a doctor or having access to clean water at the same time every day. Meanwhile, the third major class of drugs they're working on as they're sort of opening gambit into the marketplace is schizophrenia medication, because that's another population Mm. which, for different reasons, Mm -hmm. unfortunately does struggle with medication compliance. Mm -hmm. So far, all the drugs are still in various trial phases, but some are expected to be submitted for FDA approval by the end of next year and could potentially be available for prescription by the end of 2024. And the way the mechanism works is surprisingly cool. So it starts out as basically a very large pill. You swallow it and your stomach dissolves the outer capsule just like it would with any medication. But then instead of being full of just loose medicine, the once a week pill contains a folded up star shape, kind of like a three dimensional asterisk. So Mm. when the capsule dissolves, it pops open and is now too big to pass forward into the small intestine. So it just hangs out in the stomach, which is key because regardless of what you swallow, your body generally passes it within 24 to 48 hours. Mm -hmm. So if you want something that's going to last a week, you have to find a way to keep it inside your body against your body's will, basically. 
And once that star is deployed, it's just a question of coding each arm of the star with the right drugs and the right time release coding that will ensure that one arm gets worn down by day one, the next arm releases its drugs on day two. And then ultimately, the core of the star is designed to dissolve on day seven, Mm -hmm. which releases all the arms into loose pieces that are now able to pass into the small intestine and go on their merry way. And while the FDA does have to individually approve each medication in its seven-day form, the underlying medications they're using are all well-established. So when this thing starts to hit the market, it's going to hit it for a ton of different drugs right away. Wow. Lindra is also working on approval for a seven-day pill of rosuvastatin, which reduces the risk of heart disease, as well as levomethadone, which is used to treat opioid addiction and is expected to help a lot in getting folks to actually come back to the addiction clinic if they only have to come once a week instead of every day. Yeah. What's more, if you can do a week, you can do a month. And Lindra says that is coming as well. The one hurdle is that some medications are just bulkier than others. And so cramming seven days or 30 days worth of drugs into a single capsule isn't always possible. One example of this is metformin, which is used to treat type 2 diabetes and is just too big, right? Mm -hmm. But you can maybe imagine, you know, maybe you could get a set of seven pills that you take all at once, once a week, but each pill is different. So the whole day one pill is dissolving on day one, the whole day two pill goes on day two, et cetera. But then I guess maybe you do hit a point where your stomach is just like full of stars and there's no room for food. So (laughs) maybe not. (laughs) But it does sound really cool. Like to only have to take a medication once a week would be amazing. I I am in awe and shock of this. Like, so the structure of like the poles, if you will, do they remain physical or do they dissolve as well? So the, the attachment to the central core dissolves and then the arms themselves stay there. But now they're like just little loose arms so mm-hmm. they can pass through that little hole out of the stomach into the intestine. Yeah, I'm it's trying only to when they're sort of visually giant. imagine like pieces that, OK, how much of this am I going to feel? Like, am I going to feel this little pill tent uh, expand? I don't know. <laughs> I don't think so. They don't okay. mention they don't really discuss side effects. They haven't done human trials for most of Fair. them yet. They've done them in pigs. Uh, From what I understand, the pigs didn't complain. (laughs) (laughs) Presumably it's fine. Well, next week, I'm sure we'll have a great article on we've learned that pigs can complain. That's right. Pigs are very unhappy with us, both for the heart (laughs) transplant harvesting and the drug testing and the bacon. I mean, they're really, they They have a lot of grievances. It's true. It's true. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. This live science article. Millions of palm-sized flying spiders could invade the east coast of the USA, according to scientists. Well, I mean, we're not on the east coast, so it's fine, right? Like, that, it could never spread farther than that, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, yeah, about that. We're yeah, going to be talking coming. about this large spider that uses something called a web parachute to fly as far as 100 miles at a time. Folks, we are talking about the Joro spiders. And before we go any further, I would like to neuter the clickbait of this article to note that these are harmless to people. But as an invasive species, their impact on the local ecology Mm. still needs to be studied, which we all know is science for probably not going to be great, right? Right, right. (laughs) It is a huge invasive spider. It has invaded Georgia already from East Asia. It is about the size of a human palm. It's huge. It's got bright yellow stripes. And lead author Andy Davis, a research scientist at the University of Georgia, said in a statement, 
We found that this spider hitchhiked its way to the northeast of Atlanta, Georgia, inside a shipping container in 2014.、Ah. And since then, its numbers and range have expanded steadily, culminating in an astonishing population boom last year that saw millions of the arachnids draping on porches, power lines, mailboxes, and vegetable patches across more than 25 state counties. With webs as thick as ten feet deep. Okay, <clears throat> common to China,、Whoa. Taiwan, Japan, and Korea, the Joro spider gets its name from Jorogumu, a Japanese spirit or yokai that is said to disguise itself as a beautiful woman to prey upon gullible men. No word if、uh, this is related to the killing stone we spoke about <laughs> earlier, but true to its mythical reputation, the Joro spider is really beautiful. It's got this large, round, jet black body. It's got these bright yellow stripes cutting across underside, flecked with these intense red markings. And、mm. you know, even though it looks pretty intense and it's got some you know fearsome folklore behind it, the Joro spider's bite is rarely strong enough to break through human skin. And its venom poses no threats to humans, nor even dogs or cats, unless they have some kind of Asian spider allergy. And、mm. you know that's pretty good news, considering these spiders are gonna be everywhere. <laughs> After comparing the Joro spider to a close cousin, the golden silk spider, which migrated from tropical climes around 160 years ago to establish,、uh, as the article notes. An eight-legged foothold in the southern United States. <laughs> so, by tracking the spiders' locations in the wild, and then we monitored their vitals as we subjected the caught specimens to freezing temperatures. Kind of rough, but the researchers <laughs> did find that the Joro spider has about double the metabolic rate of its cousin. It also、mm. has about a seventy-seven percent higher heart rate. And a much better survival rate in cold temperatures.、Yeah. Additionally, Joro spiders tend to exist in most parts of their native Japan, warm and cold, which, as we know, has a very similar climate to the U.S. and sits across roughly the same latitude. Well, I mean, if it's going to be invasive <laughs> and push out other spider species, I'm glad it's not harmful. Like, if it wants to reduce the black widow population by、yeah. taking, you know, resources away. <laughs> I'm in favor of that. That's fine.、Yeah. And it's not just that. Apparently, mosquitoes are a favored food, as well as biting、Ooh. flies and other invasive species. So they've even got, I think, the brown marmorated stink bug in Georgia that damages crops <laughs> and has no natural predators. Hey, Joro spiders, go have at it! So、oh, most researchers on, think that the Joro is more likely to be a nuisance than a danger, and we should really just leave them alone. Quote. There's no reason to go around actively squishing them. Humans are at the root of their invasion. Don't blame the Joro spider. And they know how to skydive. I mean, they do.、Awesome. Can you picture them just like parasailing around? It's like, oh, oh where am I going to land? Listen, the article <laughs> even references Charlotte's Web because what the spiders、Aww. do is they hatch in the spring as these little spider hatchlings. They ride on the wind on a strand of silk floating across enormous distances, just like the baby spiders in Charlotte's Web. Yeah, I'm on board. I I welcome our new spider cousins. <laughs> There our, you go. Residents. I won't say overlords yet. No, but no, you no, no. Know. Allies. We we welcome、right. our spider allies. Yes. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from NewAtlas.com. It's titled "World's Longest Car Is Found, Restored, and Made Even Longer." Oh.、Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. So the thing is, like with records like this. 
You picture however long you think it is, and it's always worse. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, to actually be a world record longest car, it's got to be ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, y'all want to guess how long it is? Oh, God. Uh, uh-uh. It's a hundred feet. It's almost exactly a hundred feet, a little bit more. Yeah. Wow. 30.5 wow. meters. Yeah. So the American dream is what the car is called. And it stretches <laughs> to more than a hundred feet, seats more than 75 people, <laughs> and has its oh. own pool, diving board, jacuzzi, bathtub, and mini golf course. Oh, okay. Hang I mean, on. I, I guess that's a car. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. I absolutely made one of these with Legos when I was a kid. Yeah. There you go. It also comes with a helipad. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. And Wait if you face it me. west, it's just like the perfect definition of manifest destiny. Yeah. Like just going off into the horizon. <laughs> I'm surprised it's not called the colonializer, but yeah, America right. is close enough. Well, it was built in 1986 or so in California by custom yep. wizard Jay Orberg out of a series of Cadillac Eldorado limos, although he wimped out <laughs> articles <laughs> verbiage at just 60 feet or 18.3 meters with 26 wheels, a V8 engine in the front and another V8 in the back. Quickly uh. understanding the error of his ways, Orberg later extended it to 100 feet, putting a hinge in the middle to give it a chance to get around a corner. <laughs> <laughs> basically like a bus so um yeah 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 strangely enough it didn't prove very practical as a daily get about and after a few mm. movie appearances the dream was left to languish and rust out the back of a new jersey warehouse for many years the colossal project of restoring it was too much for the fellow that found it and he eventually sold it to its current owner michael deezer in 2019 deezer owns the deezerland park car museum and tourist attraction in orlando florida so he had the expertise to get the dream rebuilt, as well as an immediate use mm. case for it, and the well over 250000 US dollars it cost to rebuild it, a project that took more than three years. Oh, yeah. The cabin, for example, was completely trashed, so Deezer cut it out and replaced it with a cabin for another donor car, as well as replacing the entire drivetrain. In the process, mm. he made sure to add an inch and a half to its length, allowing it to retake its own Guinness World Record for the longest car. <laughs> you gotta get that publicity yep. if you're gonna add this thing to your music. Yep. Uh, the cavernous interior, built to sit more than 75 people, stretches comically off into the distance behind Deezer as he sits toward the front. The built-in <laughs> swimming pool has its own diving board, although you'd need some cojones to use it. And likewise, the helipad can support up to 5,000 pounds, so it's functional. Indeed, yeah. Deezer has a small chopper land on it in the video in the article, but judging by how close the right skid is to the edge of the pad, you want a crazy talented pilot on the job. Deezer has no right, plans right. to take the thing out on the road anymore. It's just going to sit and be an attraction at his museum. Well, that's probably the best place for it. Because you, you don't want that thing on the road. <laughs> no. That doesn't sound no. good. No. I mean, think about, okay, even if you've got a long stretch of highway, the water in the swimming pool has got to be <laughs> sloshing around. Yeah. Like, that's a that's terrible yeah. functionality right there. There's yeah. no, yeah. There's clearly only one reasonable future for this behemoth, and it's as an Airbnb. Hello? <laughs> oh, you're right. Hello? That would, uh, I might you, sleep in it for a night, You know, it's, it's basically for a photo shoot. You get, you know, mm -hmm. like, one around a very generous block, like, driver, you know, so you can actually experience it in motion, and that's right. it. Pays for yeah. itself eventually. 
Yeah. And <laughs> there's some photos and a full video of the restoration process on the article if you want to check it out. It's glorious, honestly. It's absurd and very, very long. So oh, yeah. I hope to see it at Burning Man one of these days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include how a plucky robot found Shackleton's endurance shipwreck, how would an Earth-like planet look in Alpha Centauri, and how in the world did we get Venus flytraps? So all that and more can be found on daminteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, maybe buy us a cup of coffee, you can do so at patreon.com slash daminterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.